hello. I'm Michelle Carlo, and this show is Fish Out of Agua. Last week, I found myself wandering around Lower Manhattan, wearing every inch of makeup I owned and some open-toed candy sandals with tube socks on a slushy cold February night, searching for Johnny Thunders and a rock club called Heat. This week, the 70s are undulating towards their climax as I come to a milestone each and every one of us consummates on the road to adulthood. Jeez Louise, could I be talking about SEX? You betcha. Or more like how I flounder and fumble my way towards, um, uh, you guys ever read the book Forever by Judy Bloom? Well, this episode is kind of going to be like that, only not really because it's the Bronx, okay? So hang on tight, kids, because that levee is about to break. was When the Levee Breaks by Led Zeppelin from Led Zeppelin 4. We have a lot of story for you this week. We have a lot of story for you this week. But first, I want to kind of set the mood. You know, ease in to letting you know what yous are in for. With this song from the Chakakas. Ooh, or Chakachas. Yeah, Chakachas, not Kachakas. Chakachas. Who? despite their name, were in fact the Belgian-based group of Latin soul studio musicians, including Tito Puente's Cuban singer, Carrie Kenton, who actually is listed as his wife and widow on some of the internets, but then again, on some other places on the internet, he's also listed as married to a woman named Margaret Essential. So, like a President Number 45 press conference, who knows what to believe? Anyway, the Chacachas, they started playing music in the 1950s, 
and were one-hit wonders in 1972 with this song, Jungle Fever. on Radio Free Brooklyn with Fish Out of Agua. So kids, it's time to take the Wayback Machine now, all the way back to 1978. And we're going to begin with another one of the letters that in Fish Out of Agua that were spoken, but never quite written. From Chapter 28 of Fish Out of Agua, The Politics of Panties. Dear Michel, I just heard the news from your mother, finally. You have your own first novio. (laughs) Well, Miha, I have to tell you it is about time, seeing as you are almost 18. To be honest, I am surprised that you were even able to get a boyfriend boyfriend in the first place, but then again, I heard he was Irish. Ay, pobrecita, I guess that was all you could get. If you ask me, it is all your mother's fault. She is the one who left El Barrio. She is the one who brought you up with white people. She is the one that lets you listen to those Peter Floyds, Lead Zeppelins, and Blacks. I know, coño mija, that is not musica. I just hope that she is at least teaching you how to please this boy. Otherwise, this novio might be your last. But I know your mother, and so I know that she has taught you nada about nada. So, if you do not want your toto to grow cobwebs and you die una jamona virginia, you listen to your titi Ophelia. I know all about men. After all, I am about to marry my fourth husband. 
Now, back in my day, a mujer was smart. She was selective. And she always followed these rules. <clears throat> first, siempre vaya a bailar primero. Always go dancing on the first date. Mija, hanging out in a schoolyard, talking and drinking cerveza is no way to get to know a man. To find out if you were truly compatible with someone, you must get him to take you dancing so you can see how comfortable he is with his cuerpo. Because if a man is self-conscious, stepping all over you and apologizing when he is standing up, that is exactly how he is going to be when he is lying down. Second, nunca tenga sexo con alguien que no le gusta la comida. Never have sex with anyone who doesn't like food. Now, after a man has passed the dance test, it's time to get him to buy you some dinner. And you make sure that you watch him while he is eating. Because if he eats like un puerco, he will most likely treat you the same way. If he eats the same thing all of the time, your other activities will also lack a certain lack a certain variety, if uh, you know what I mean. But if he eats with manners and pleasure, and better yet, offers to share his food with you, hoo-hoo, save that bizcocho for when you get home. And last, pero not least, lava sus panties cada noche. Wash your panties every night. Michel, you might only be 15, but it is nunca too early to learn that the way that you get a ring on your finger is you put one through the man's nose. And mija, your panties are the exact weapon to do this. Men want to get in them. Women need to make them think they can. <laughs> First, you let them see, pero no tocar, no touch. You let them breathe, but no taste. Touch, but not well, you know. And you always make sure that your panties are clean, clean, clean. Because one day, mija, and no mujer knows the hour, one day, those panties will come off. And you can tell your mother this from me. She, who siempre goes on and on and on and on and on and on about how she married the only man who ever touched her. Which, by the way, does explica a lot, but you never mind. You tell your mother that I said a mujer can be the Grand Canyon, the Holland Tunnel, and the Cross Bronx Expressway. But as long as she washes her panties in the shower every night, no one can ever call me a slut. Hmm. Ooh, well, I have to go now. Gilberto was calling me for some sabor muy gigante, if you know what I mean. <laughs> oh, I forgot. You are just 12. Never mind. The way you are going... You'll be lucky if you get eat by the time you are 25. Con mucho amor, Tite Ophelia. And now, chapter 29 from Fish Out of Agua. The Clam. Tite Ophelia, of course, didn't actually write me that letter. But she might as well have. She could never remember how old I was. She could never forget that my mother had only married once to her first and only boyfriend. And she could not handle the truth. My truth. Sex in the Puerto Rican? Not as hot as you might think. Because according to all I had ever seen, read, and heard, in movies, on TV, and in magazines, 
I was part of a culture that was naturally better at doing it than anyone else's. My white girlfriends had Charlie's Angels as unattainable role models to make them feel inadequate. I had Charo. And every time I saw her work her coochie-coochie routine, it was clear that I, too, was expected to flounce around in Kiana lingerie, cooing, I, Mommy, I, Poppy, to everyone I met. Wonder Woman and Daisy Duke, the only other Latin or part Latin women on primetime television, would hide behind anglicized last names for years and years. The message? As a Latin female, my role was to be the world's eternally hot-to-trot sex machine stereotype. Always ready. Always available. Always 30 seconds from inducing or achieving a universe-destroying orgasm. (sighs) However, my family with the notable exception of Titi Ophelia, from the very first day of my very first period, trained me to, one, walk as if a dime were clenched between my butt cheeks so my hips wouldn't betray me and get me pregnant. Two, never be alone in a car with a boy because I would get pregnant. Three, never even tongue kiss, not even once, because that would most certainly get me pregnant. And that, well... That was a lot of mixed messages for a 17-year-old who was actually the last virgin in her crowd. Maybe it was because you can't really flounce in the rock concert t-shirts, jeans, and little Abner work boots I usually wore, as opposed to dresses that were short, red, and tight. Or maybe it was because, unless I was trying to go into a rock club, I spent more time drawing cartoons than putting on makeup. Well, maybe it was because what goes on between consenting adults stays behind closed doors. And what does or doesn't go on amongst teenagers gets displayed for all to see. One sharp autumn evening, I walked into St. Peter's Park and saw spray-painted on the handball court in blue letters two feet high, Shell is the Clam. I could not deny the cutting brilliance of the play on words with my nickname. I also could not deny the humiliation that went from the catch in my throat, traveling deep down to the place where no man had gone before. I had actually expected and dreaded seeing this public confirmation of my carnal experience. What I did not expect was that the truth would hurt so much. But it was true. I was St. Peter's Park's one and only clam. Everyone else I knew over the age of 15 had done it except me. And in the immortal words of my friend Jeannie DeWaste, yeah, man, so I got down with Jackie. What the fuck? In my crowd, you skipped second and third bases and you went straight from making out to the Eastern Women's Center in Queens Plaza for your abortion. How many times had I cut school to be there with a girlfriend and held her hair while she puked outside afterwards? How many times did I help someone come up with the lie We were going to tell her mother this time. I never saw anyone's boyfriend at the clinic. Ever. And that, more than any admonition, yeah, admonition I had ever received, made me decide that I was not going to be pregnant. Ever. So, that meant that after years of random makeouts, I had never had a real boyfriend. 
Because to have a real boyfriend, you had to get down. You had to do it. Proof of Titi Ophelia's womanhood could be found on the fourth finger of her left hand. Proof of womanhood in my neighborhood was found around the girl's neck. Not hickeys, even I occasionally had those. But by an ankle bracelet worn as a necklace. A symbol as irrefutable as the wedding night sheets paraded through the villages of my friends' Irish and Italian ancestors. Yellow gold with a single heart was good. White gold with double hearts was better. Diamond chips, pearls, and engraving was the best and most expensive of all, which meant that the boy definitely loved not only you, but also the way you got down. A lot. Like the single earring a lot of boys were now wearing in their left ears, an ankle bracelet was evidence that you had left childhood behind forever. Only around my neck, I wore a small silver cross shaped like two nails, to bear witness that I was una jamona vejenia, a virgin spinster. And one spring morning, I met Brendan, the burnout, Riley. Brendan was not from my park, but from 192 schoolyard up in Throg's Neck. I knew him from school, or rather from outside of school, where he hung out every morning from 7.30 till homeroom, next to the phone booths in front of the diner across the street, occasionally selling the loose joints we called bones and the mild, peach-colored, triangle-shaped amphetamines we called peaches. Brendan was the kind of boy that everyone liked, but also the kind everyone made fun of because he was a little goofy. Rumor had it that he had done acid every day for a month, an entire month, orange double barrel sunshine, no yes. Plus, he'd do things like sing the entire Yes Songs album from start to finish for no reason. Hence, Brendan the Burnout. I'd copped weed from him from time to time, but never paid him much attention until the day came when he asked if I could draw him something. That morning before his, before for his period, I had bought a bone from him and started to cross the street when I heard him call out, Hey, Shell! Shell! You're the one who draws, right? Can you make me a Zofo? I saw the tattoo you made for Gizmo and the jacket you painted for Tommy. They are fucking rageous, man. You're talented. I had drawn a naked girl with a top hat and a rose in her teeth for Gizmo and painted a space fish from Yes's Tales from Topographic Oceans album for Tommy. Both were my crowning artistic achievements at the time, and I had gotten five dollars each for them. I turned around. The burner was actually pretty cute. Tall. Six foot three, at least, and slim, with long blonde bangs that hid his blue eyes. His bangs had gotten messed up from him running after me, which revealed those round blue eyes, made even rounder by extremely dilated pupils. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll draw you something. When? Uh, today's good. You want to cut out and go to my house? No one's home. I have window pane. So we went to his house on Hollywood Avenue and took the acid. And I drew the Zofo symbols from Led Zeppelin IV on loose-leaf paper for hours until I got them just right. When I was done, he kissed me. A half an hour later, when I nervously asked him to stop, 
he did the unimaginable. Okay, he said. Do you want to go to Louise and get pizza? I couldn't believe. He just stopped making out. Stopped. With every other boy I had ever been with, my chastity was what caused our immediate and complete breakup. But Brendan didn't try to seduce me the next day or the next or even the next. And finally, I got the courage to tell him that I was Una Hamona Virginia, and I was sure that he'd tell me to get bent and that would be the end of us, but he just said, That's cool. I can wait. I was shocked. I mean, even though Brendan came from 192 Schoolyard, everyone down at St. Peter's knew that he had done it with Laura Borelli, one of the strange girls who wore too much black eyeliner and hung out by the monument shop across from St. Raymond's Cemetery. People said that those kids that hung out across from the cemetery, they were weird. They climbed the fences at night and tripped ingested psychedelics, not stumbled, although they may have done some stumbling with their feet as well, tripping among the tombstones. And not even I, who'd spent my childhood catching bugs in St. Peter's Church's small graveyard and who was known for saying, well, I'll try anything twice, would dare to do that. And those same people told me that the it had even been done in the cemetery at midnight. But Brendan had to be home by 1 a.m. on the weekends, 10 o'clock on a school night. So I wasn't sure if that was true because, I mean, sex took a long time, didn't it? So, yeah, Brendan was definitely not like any other boy I'd ever been with before. And I liked hanging out with him. And I was relieved the pressure was off. But for how long? From that day of Zofo on, the burner and shell were ham and eggs, peanut butter and chocolate, Acapulco gold and strawberry easy wider. On school nights, we'd drink a beer, hang out, talk, 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 which would have made Titi Ophelia toss her panties, her, excuse me, would have made Titi Ophelia toss her panties in despair had she been there. And then we would go home and talk on the phone some more. Weekends, we'd ride around in his van singing every 18-minute prog rock tune you can think of, plus some you may have mercifully blocked out. Or we'd split a tab of blotter and draw, which not even my mother could claim would get you pregnant. One long Saturday, we did chocolate mescaline and lay in his bed fully clothed for hours, kissing, stroking each other's hair, and sucking on each other's necks while listening to Led Zeppelin III over and over until our mouths were dry and our necks were bruised meat. Instead of a prom that June, kids from every hangout, from St. Peter's Park to Zappa's Corner to Edgewater to Silver Beach to 192, celebrated Lehman High School's graduating class of 1978 by going to Orchard Beach for the anti-prom tripping party. Only straight kids in the disco-loving, platform-wearing Hollywoods from Loretto and Waterbury Parks went to the actual prom. Brendan and I did purple mescaline and ran singing through the woods behind the parking lots until people started pouring beer on us to make us stop. A week later, I wore a black and blue flowered satin cowl-neck dress my mother had gotten me from Bonwit Teller, and I stepped into Lehman High School for what I thought would be the last time. In July... Brendan and I had our three-month anniversary, and I turned 18. I had never been with a boy so long before. We were so inseparable that I was almost convinced we didn't need to have actual sex. 
But more often than not, it was Brendan who was the one who make us to make us stop. And I'd lie there in silence while he finished. Sometimes I watched. Most times I didn't. He never made me feel guilty about it. Our clothes never came off. We never crossed the make-out line. I knew what Brendan and I were or weren't doing, but once the summer was over, I noticed the boys in my park throwing Brendan slimy looks of approval whenever he drove down to pick me up. They, who had never gotten any more than tongue from me, were now giving the burner respect for the first time in his life. They'd punch his shoulder or clap him on his back, and Brendan would just smile and duck his head, happy for the attention. And why not? We had been going together since May, and they all naturally assumed the burner had opened the clam. All that was missing was the proof. My girlfriends knew better. When I finally confessed to Nikki, Janie, and Dawn that we hadn't yet done it, they looked at my neck with the same look of disgust my mother had that morning when she saw I had a fresh hickey. You don't have an ankle bracelet yet, Shell? You've been together six months and you haven't gotten down yet? What are you waiting for, Shell? You're 18. You gotta do it before it dries out. And besides, you're Spanish. Aren't you supposed to do it? And then the night came when I walked into the park and saw the writing on the handball court wall. Brenda and I were supposed to go see the new movie Halloween, but I turned around and ran straight home. It was bad enough when a girl was called a whore, or if the linguistically challenged wrote, Hua, ho, or woe. And in the Bronx, a hua was a whore. But for the world to know that after having a boyfriend all this time and not having done it was almost worse. And I was afraid of what would happen when Brendan found out what they had written about me on the wall. The next evening, Brendan and I did go to see Halloween. He picked me up at my house instead of the park at my insistence. But he doubled around the block and drove past there on the way to the movie, which was kind of out of the way. And I couldn't figure out why until, as we passed the park, I saw the bottom half of the handball court court wall had been painted over in black. I looked at Brendan, but he stared straight ahead and drove. It was the first time we had ever driven anywhere in silence. At the movie, I cringed every time Jamie Lee Curtis so obviously didn't get killed because she was the movie's one and only Hamona Rahenya, and I wouldn't let Brendan make out with me at all, not even after we went to sit in the very back row and opened up a bottle of Iago Sangria. On the way home, he popped in an A-track, but I still didn't feel like singing. He rolled down the window and tried anyway. Long distance, run around. Long time, waiting to feel the sound. I rolled the window back up. It wasn't summer anymore. It was October. It was starting to get cold. When we got to my house, to my building, he spoke. I saw what they wrote. wrote. That sucked. Yeah. Well, it's gone now. Yeah. And then Brendan handed me a box. Um, I I know it's not Christmas yet, but, um, uh, here. He ducked his head, his long blonde bangs as always covering his face. I opened the box. 
Inside was a silver wishbone and a silver chain. I drew a breath. It wasn't what I wanted. What I wanted was a white gold ankle bracelet with double hearts, diamond chips, and black and white pearls. I wanted the ultimate, sabado muy gigante, crotchless, panty, motherload of all ankle bracelets. The ankle bracelet that said that I had gotten down forwards, backwards, and sideways. Even though I hardly deserved one. Because I hadn't earned it. Brendan fiddled with the cross hanging from his left ear. It's a wishbone. It's for us. A wish. You don't have to get down with me right now if you don't want to. It's okay. I just wanted to give you something. I can wait. I really liked Brendan. More than I had ever liked any other boy. Being with him made me feel like I belonged to someone in a way that for the first time in my life was completely mine and mine alone. And if I was going to get down with anyone... It would be him. For my actual Christmas present, he got us tickets to see Aerosmith at Madison Square Garden. We did some purple THC, and he also bought us matching T-shirts. It was a great concert. And it was now a new year. And Brendan was still waiting. And now Chapter 30 of Fish Out of Agua. Easy Eddie. February 1979. The Bronx had burned. Now, it was my turn. By now I knew that Latin men were most women's fantasies. I had also lived with Latin men my entire life. I heard them yell. I saw them eat. I watched them scratch. But I wanted something different and I got it. A tall, blonde Irish boy named Brendan the Burnout Riley. We had been going out for almost a year and even Titi Ophelia had to admit, well, at least she got something. As Brendan's girlfriend, I knew who I was, better than I ever had before, and that was almost enough. I was almost happy, until I met Easy Eddie Torres. One warmish midwinter night, I had gone to hang out with Brendan at 192 Schoolyard and saw a boy who I hadn't seen before talking with our friends Billy and Renee. He was leaning against the chain-link fence, smoking a bone and drinking a champagne. I dropped Brendan's hand and stared. For the first time in my life, I felt a quickening, a twinge of liquid heat between my thighs, a signal I had not yet felt with Brendan or anyone else ever before. He was Brendan's exact physical opposite, short, maybe five foot six and solid in build, with honey-colored skin just like Titi Ophelia and almond-shaped dark brown eyes. There were only five of us hanging out that night, the five of us, and we all sat in a circle and talked. A six-pack and a couple of bones later, I found out the new boy's name was Easy Eddie, and his family had moved up from Miramar, Florida, that January. I knew where Miramar was. It was close to the South Florida towns where most of my father's family lived. I suddenly had a vision of Easy Eddie and me making out naked on a white sand beach and staring into each other's eyes, but I just told him I... I'd been to Miramar. He laughed and asked, Why? Something in his voice made me think that maybe, just maybe, he might be Latin like I was. But I, who would usually say anything to anyone at any time, was somehow hesitant to ask him directly. I was afraid to know the truth. Brendan and Billy went to get more beer, and Renee asked what I couldn't, where he was from. 
Eddie laughed and said his real name was Eddie Torres, and he was half Irish and half Cuban, and Easy Eddie was his nickname, and he had been out of the sun for so long, he was definitely looking more Irish now. I just stared. Someone that fine had to have a girlfriend, and I was sure someone would come into the park any minute, into the schoolyard any minute, and claim her territory. But the only people who came back to the schoolyard, though, were Brendan and Billy. And by the time we finished the second six-pack, I learned he wasn't seeing anyone. And as far as I was concerned, that was it. Brendan drove me home that night, and we both sang out of the window, but for totally different reasons. Brendan sang because, well, that's what the birder did. I sang because for the first time in my life I had looked at a Latin male and wanted to see him naked. It didn't matter that he wore a members-only jacket and had five scraggly hairs on his chin. For the first time in my life, I was in lust. I was in love with Eddie. It was perfect except for one thing. I had a boyfriend. A boyfriend whom after almost a year together I had still not had sex with. A boyfriend who stopped our marathon makeout sessions only when he could take it no longer and then took care of himself and never ever made me feel stupid about it. Sweet, goofy, Brendan, who I drew cartoons with, got stoned with, listened to music with, had fun with, and felt as comfortable with as my own skin. Suddenly, I, who had always preferred hanging out with my park, St. Peter's, and my friends to his, now made every excuse possible to hang out at 192. I even started going there when I knew Brendan wasn't, walking 40 minutes from my house each way on the chance that Eddie would be there. I heard Eddie liked Led Zeppelin, so I did what I did best. I took a couple of Brendan's peaches and stayed up all night painting the cover of Led Zeppelin 4 on the back of my dungaree jacket, including all the runes. I wore it out even though it was 38 degrees and raining, only to hear Eddie say that Eddie say that Led Zeppelin now sucked and the Clash ruled. The Clash? Who the hell were they? I went to the Westchester Square head shop record store looking for the album, but they didn't have it. So I put it on order, and then I tried drinking champagne, but it just made me puke. And you don't understand. I was getting desperate, because everywhere I looked, I saw Easy Eddie. I saw Easy Eddie when I was making out with Brendan every day. I saw Easy Eddie when I lay with my legs spread under the bathtub faucet every night. And when my bearded Titi Carmen dragged me to church because of my teenaged crazed lust, I forgot to lock the bathroom door the night I stayed over at her house. I looked up at Pastor Ramirez and saw Easy Eddie. But Easy Eddie didn't notice me. And then one day, he did. It was at Nicky Boom Boom's and my very belated graduation St. Patrick's Day party at Nicky's house. Nicky and I both had to repeat half our senior years at Lehman High School and didn't receive our official diplomas until that January. Her boyfriend, Tommy Pissclam, had just given her a redone ankle bracelet, adding a row of black diamonds. When Eddie walked over to me and asked me for a light. A light? My hand trembled as I lit the match and he said, I heard you're Puerto Rican, that true? See, si, uh, yeah, my mom is from Corozal and my dad is from Cabo Rojo, but I was born here. I could tell. Me too, but my old man's from Havana, though. We just moved here. Yeah, I know, from Miramar. Yeah? How'd you know? You said that the first night we met. Really? What was that? Before I could answer with the exact day, hour, and second, he said, Hey, you like salsa dancing? Uh, sure. Yeah, of course. I go to this little place down in Spanish Harlem every Monday. Want to meet me there? We should go. You and me, we're the only blood around. 
And hey, you don't have to be nervous. There's just me. He's Eddie. That's when I noticed my hand was still shaking. Oh my God, he asked me to go dancing. On a Monday night. Never mind that I had met him just a couple of weeks before and had barely spoken to him. Never mind that I had never danced salsa before in my life. Never mind that I already had a boyfriend. I spent the week trying on everything in my closet, but rock concert t-shirts and little Abner work boots were for hanging out in schoolyards, drinking cerveza, not going dancing with un hombre, a man. Didi Ophelia would have been proud of me if I had told her, but not just yet. I closed my eyes and imagined the look on her face, on all my family's faces, when I told them I was easy Eddie Torres's girlfriend. Going out with him would at long last make up for every bad thing that had ever happened to me. Every time I had been called spick or speck, spit on, beaten up or stabbed, yelled at and dismissed and ignored, would then be erased forever. None of my girlfriends had anything appropriate for a night of salsa dancing. Could I trust them? Really trust them? I wasn't afraid that Nikki Dawn and Marie would betray me. I was afraid they would talk me out of it. They had all grown to love Brendan. Nikki and Marie would even mock fight over which one of them would eventually be my maid of honor. Nope, I would have to do this all alone, like a mature, grown-up woman, a mujer. In desperation, I tried on the black and blue dress I wore to what I thought was my high school graduation that past June. And after nearly a year of every night munchies, I had gotten a little chunky again and had to rig safety pins to the dress's back zipper in an effort to close the inch-wide gap along it in my back. Maybe Eddie wouldn't notice. In the middle of this, Brendan called, and I was immediately struck by a sneezing fit. He said I sounded like I was getting sick. Sick? Huh. Here I was being transformed by true love for the first time in my life, and my boyfriend thought I was sick? It was a sign. After all, weren't Easy Eddie and I the only Latin kids in our part of the Bronx? And I knew, with all the conviction of my 18 years on the planet, that if only I could make Easy Eddie my boyfriend, everyone would know that at last I was a true Latina and my life would have peace. We met at a storefront club on 106th Street in Spanish Harlem. I didn't want him to pick me up, just in case anyone from the neighborhood saw us. And as I got off the subway at 103rd Street, I realized that I had never been in my parents' old neighborhood as an adult by myself before and it was only fitting that I was, I was returning to claim my one and only true Latin love. Instead of walking into an illegal social club that night, I saw a starlit realm that I imagined to be the Rainbow Room, Saturday Night Fever, and CBGBs all rolled into one. Eddie saw me right away, took my arm, and steered me right to the bar where he bought me an Amarillo Sour, a love nectar, another sign. When that sign had been drained dry, he bought me another, and another, and still another. Finally, Eddie took me by the hand and led me to the dance floor. You sure you can handle this? he asked. This ain't no punk rock, you know. The sight of Easy Eddie in his Latigra shirt drove me wild, and I couldn't wait to show him all my moves. Which, after four drinks and an empty stomach, were the kick to the shins, the elbow to the neck, and the ass on the floor. But I didn't care. I was with Easy Eddie. And when he finally gave up and led me to the sofa, all I could think was he was going to kiss me and I was going to die. I had a flashback of Brendan's and my six-month anniversary. It was a chilly November afternoon when he led me into his room and 
I found a rose on the bed, a bottle of matus on the nightstand, and Led Zeppelin since I've been loving you playing on the stereo. So speaking of flashbacks, there was that time that I took a hit of acid that was just plain bad, way too speedy, and I had my one and only really bad trip, but Brendan didn't let me freak out. Even though he'd taken as much as I did, he talked to me and made me drink water until I came down. I shook all that off. That was puppy love. This, now, was real. And when Eddie kissed me, all thoughts of Brendan vaporized, just like the TVs, VCRs, and boomboxes from the stores on Fordham Road during the 1977 blackout. After the kiss, I felt a gush of heat like the night in the schoolyard, only now in a more urgent way. It felt like my insides were going to melt, the way it did when I touched myself. Brendan had never kissed me like that. Brendan didn't make me feel like that. Well, who was Brendan anyway? So I made up for my shortcomings as a dancer with what I knew was my superior make-out ability. Even when one of the safety pins I had rigged my dress with broke open and stabbed Easy Eddie in the hand, I took a squeal of pain as another sign. A sign that Eddie and I were destined to be 192 Schoolyard's power couple. It's one and only Latin king and queen. It was destiny. It was kismet. It would be forever. A half hour later, when we got to the point where Brendan would always stop, Eddie stopped too. Come on. I'll drive you home. Eddie had a car, too? Life was just too perfect. Instead of driving me home, though, he drove straight to the parking lot at Orchard Beach. Oh, he wants to make out some more, I thought. Cool. We got into the back seat, shared a bone, and started making out again. But this time was different. He pulled up my dress and put his hand down the waistband of my pantyhose, something Brendan had never done before. I pushed him away. What's the matter? You don't have to be nervous. It's just me. Easy Eddie. We started making out again, and I let his hand move around down there. I really didn't like it. It didn't feel like my fingers did. This felt scratchy and burny and just plain wrong. The rising volcano that had been inside me sputtered and went out. I dismissed it. No. This is it, I thought. I'm finally going to get down with someone, and it's going to be Eddie, and we're going to go out, and he's going to buy me an ankle bracelet, and I'm going to wear it, and then he'll come to all my titi's houses with me, and then everyone will know that... Mommy, mommy, dime. Dime que me quieres. Toca mi bicho. What? Tell me you want me. Touch my dick. Ow, not like that. Um, um, okay, 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 yeah, yeah, papi. Oh, papi. See, Poppy, gay, gay. Uh, Eddie took his hand out of my underwear. I could smell myself, which both frightened and aroused me. I couldn't wait for what I was sure was going to happen next, but instead, it was Eddie who sat up. Gay nothing. You don't even speak Spanish right. Oh, what the hell. Eddie straddled me and in one motion tried to take my pantyhose and panties, the weapon by which I was supposed to control men with, off. I froze. I think I said, No! Eddie sat up again. Are you a fucking virgin? You are a fucking virgin, aren't you? You know something? You're full of shit. You're worse than these white girls. You're a fake. (sighs) Forget it. 
He pulled up his pants, climbed into the front seat, and pulled out of the parking lot. And you're lucky I'm a nice guy, because otherwise, I'd make you blow me. And then I'd make you walk home. On that horrible ride home, I stayed in the back seat, trying to put myself back together and realize the truth. Eddie didn't like me because I could draw, because we liked the same music, or because we got high and had fun together, or even because I was Latin like he was. He didn't like me at all. Eddie never liked me. He just wanted to fuck. And what was now churning my stomach and threatening to explode from my eyes was that I had to admit that I had wanted to fuck too. Except I had wanted to fuck my boyfriend. We drove back to my building without another word. He stopped barely long enough to let me out, and then he burned rubber up Westchester Avenue. I don't remember walking up the five flights to the apartment, going inside, or getting into bed. Kevin tapped on the false wall. Michelle, what's wrong? He shouldn't die! The next morning, I skipped work, and my mother reminded me yet again how I was out of high school now, and if I wasn't going to go to college, I had to work. I didn't tell her what I told my brother. I just stayed in bed and cried. The next day, Renee, my girlfriend from 192, called to tell me that Eddie had been going around saying that I'd given him a blowjob. A blowjob? That was a blow from which your reputation could never recover. Oh, it was fine to get down with every boy you went out with, too. That was normal. But to have it known that you sucked a boy's dick? In the immortal words of Janie DeWaste, That's not necessary, man. Any girl who does that is a filthy whore. There was no way that that lie could make it down to St. Peter's Park. If they had written that I was the clam on the handball court, what wouldn't they write now? A big Lisa couldn't hang out anymore because someone had written on the handball court that she and Joni Burns from 119 Park were the Grand Canyon and the Holland Tunnel. I would never be able to show my face anywhere ever again. What was I supposed to do? It wasn't as if I could just go and make new friends. I was out of high school now. I forced myself to get out of bed, get dressed, and go to 192 for what I was not sure. I just knew I had to. I walked into the schoolyard and there was Easy Eddie drinking that fucking awful piss water champagne, talking with a group of kids, smirking. On the other side was Brendan, sitting against the fence alone, his bangs in his eyes, drinking a big bottle of that equally fucking awful, too sweet and nasty Matus wine. I walked up to Eddie, shaking, just like the night I had lit a cigarette for him at Nikki's house two weeks and a lifetime ago. I didn't blow you and you know it. Did I? Did I? Eddie was surprisingly speechless. Everyone stared. Even though it was that last cold night before the spring really kicked in, about 30 degrees, I could feel my entire body flame on, but now in an entirely different way. Somehow, my shame had given me power, and instead of using my panties as a weapon, I used words. Why don't you tell them the truth, Eddie? You couldn't even get it up. And you know why? Because it's... It's small! Get bent! I threw my lit cigarette at him. Eddie yelled something at me, but I didn't care. That was the easy part, and now it was done. Only now I had to somehow make it right with Brendan. 
I looked over where he had been sitting and saw that he had heard the whole thing. He smashed the matouse bottle against the concrete where it shattered into a thousand glittering pieces. He rose, slowly, wobbling just a little, and stood among the cold shards of glass for a moment. He turned and walked out of the schoolyard, and I followed. Don't follow me. I'm going home. No, wait. What, Shell? What? What? I stood there with the wind howling down Hollywood Avenue and told Brendan everything about that awful night. How Eddie and I did not get down, even though, yes, I had wanted to, and how I now knew it was a horrible mistake. I told him everything. Everything except that my delusion that having sex with Eddie would have somehow made up for the way I was to my family, the way I was to myself. That final humiliation had to remain mine, and mine alone. At the end, I begged him to go back with me. I don't know. I don't know, Shell. I had to think about it. I cried. But I understood. I had publicly disrespected him. He had been with me for almost a year and never cheated, which, by the unspoken schoolyard rule, was the boy's right while he was waiting for the girl to make up her mind whether or not she was going to get down with him. Only to have me get down, well, not really, but kind of, sort of, with someone else. And even though I didn't, I might as well have. Three days went by. Three days in which I threw up, had diarrhea, listened to Led Zeppelin three over and over, and screamed at my family every time they tried to find out what was the matter until they finally gave up and let me alone. Each day I locked myself in the bathroom, smoked cigarettes out the window, and cried for hours. I looked in the mirror. Even though my face had changed, even though my face hadn't changed, I had. I had been innocent. And even though I was still technically a virgin, I wasn't innocent anymore. Finally, Brendan called me from the payphone on the corner and told me to come downstairs. We can go back, but on one condition. We have to do it. We went to Orchard Beach that night, to the same woods where the great tripping anti-prom had been the summer before. He spread out a quilt, rolled out a sleeping bag, and twisted the cap off a bottle of Little Rhine Bear, the cheap leapfrog milch that was one step above Matus, and my favorite. And the burner and the clam finally did it. It hurt. A lot. But I have to give Brendan credit. Even after everything that happened, he was patient and gentle for the two hours I cried and clenched until it finally happened. Three minutes later, after it was done, he kissed me. I love you, Shell. Didn't you know? He stroked my hair for a minute or two and fell asleep. <coughs> I lay there in his arms, and despite the sleeping bag and the quilt, Orchard Beach was itching me. Except for the sand, I had felt nothing, but soon that would change. Brendan, being Brendan, was just as patient and gentle as he had always been for the entire month it took me to finally realize, Aha! Uh-huh. So this is why people do it. And it would be another month before I understood what that people said about boys with big hands and big feet, like Brendan, was all too true. And that the not-so-sad truth was, <laughs> Eddie was small.
life went back to the way it had been before. Kind of. Diti Ophelia had been right after all. Brendan was all I could get. Maybe I wasn't good enough, hot enough, Latin enough to get the boy who made me melt, who drove me mad, and who almost made me throw everything away for just one night, but I did get my best friend back. My sweet burner, who sang to me, knew what I liked to drink, stroked my hair, and told me he loved me. That night in Orchard Beach, before I too fell asleep, I thought, maybe it is going to be okay. Maybe this will be enough. That was a clip from the Fania All-Stars Anacoana from 1971's Our Latin Thing you heard playing during the Salsa Club scene from Easy Eddie. And that's our show tonight. This has been Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. If you've liked what you've heard today or on a past episode, sponsor us. You can do it for as little as $1 per episode. That's the cost of just two bananas at your local day job fruit stand. Just go to the Fish Out of Agua page on RadioFreeBrooklyn.com, click on the green Sponsor This Show button, and let Patreon take care of the rest. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll leave you with this song from Yes and the Fragile album that made me feel that, yeah, maybe everything was going to finally be all right. See you next week. 